Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am here joined with the illustrious Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome back to OK Computer. I'm thrilled to be here. I was off last week on the slopes of Whistler Blackcomb, but you know, the news topic, the tech cycle, never far from my mind. All right. Are they talking about on, on the slopes? Are they talking about chatbots and AI and all that sort of stuff? Because it seems like we can't quit it here in the U.S., obviously in Silicon Valley, where you are now, but it's also been a Wall Street story. You know, on Fast Money, we are covering it. You know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, the launch of Microsoft's new Bing, and they're integrating the open AI, and then obviously Google rushed out their barred language model within their own search, and that didn't go particularly well, and then with a little hindsight, the Microsoft one didn't go particularly well, and so it's interesting. Microsoft's given a lot of the gains that it had earlier in the month related to the launch and Google continues to go down, down about 10%. In market cap terms, that's like more than $100 billion. And it's pretty crazy here, but there's a lot of stuff going on outside of that. I'm just curious, thoughts here because investors, I think at least have come back to earth on this stuff and maybe they're kind of overly punishing Google right here? Yeah, I mean, I always thought that maybe Google was being overly punished, but then you hear arguments like Microsoft beat them to the game. They brought this mainstream. So maybe that is deserved. Maybe Microsoft for now is going to leave but of course, the longer term is up in the air. I like how you talk about maybe coming back down to earth because if you talk about the battle between Microsoft and Google, that may be the case, but a new hype cycle is starting a level down. If last week or the last few weeks have been about the tech giants battling it out over AI, this week, it's really come down to the next level players, the snaps. Even I saw today Chime is coming out with its AI chatbot product. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. And just to know, a little tease here, stick around after my conversation with Debo. Um, I have my friend Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital and his partner over there, Matt Turk. Matt is in his 10th edition of the MAD Report, which stands for Machine Learning, AI, and Data. It's, it's really a really in-depth, interactive report on the landscape and how things have changed year over year and what they kind of see as evolving over the course of this year and, and out, obviously, a few years and how they're deploying capital. And so really interesting conversation with Matt, Rick, and myself. So stick around for that. Okay. So let's talk about that next tier, Debo, because it's really kind of interesting. Like um, Right now, as we're talking, this is Tuesday afternoon, Meta, that's the Facebook stock, is up more than 4%. Snap is up 3.5%. Both of those companies had announcements. I think it was Meta announced that they're basically starting a group. The fact that they don't have a group there um, <laughs> right now that's focused on this sort of chatbot technology. And Snap announced that they are releasing one based on open AI. Do you think that excitement, and we're going to talk a little bit about TikTok after this, is about those initiatives or is it something broader right here? Excitement, sure, but lasting excitement, maybe less so. I think on that snap announcement, the stock jumped, what, 4% and came back down to earth before the day was over. In terms of meta, um, what was it? Zuckerberg just put something out on Instagram saying that they have this group, as you said. What are they doing? Transitioning the metaverse group to AI? Maybe. It's not that difficult to say things, but to show actual numbers, I think that maybe there was something that was overlooked and there was a story in the Financial Times on how... It's AI integration is actually helping advertisers. And that is key. And I think that's what's going to drive Meta going forward. How does AI play into its core business? Not something that is so out in the future that it won't be able to capitalize on now. Yeah, it's funny. When I think about the, the public markets and how this can kind of play out, we both just said it. We thought that the massive moves in you know trillion plus market cap companies like Microsoft, which was nearly two trillion and Google was a little over one trillion, the, the sort of like tens or if not hundreds of billions of dollars that were moved around seemed kind of odd in two big names like that. But when you think about a snap, which is, you know, again, this is a $16 billion market cap company doing maybe $5 billion in sales 
sales. And if you talk about a subscription product, and this is the story that I was reading about what Snap is going to try to offer in their Snap Plus. I mean, those are things that could move the needle for a company like Snap. And if they were ever to kind of hit lightning in a bottle as it relates to just kind of some of the other social applications, or like you just said, as it relates to advertisers and, and gaining more share there, just talk to me a little bit about how you'd be thinking about like the first and second tier players in the public markets right now. In the case of Snap, it feels like a watered down chatbot, right? It's going to have more restrictions than the Bing version that Microsoft is releasing. And even that one, certain restrictions because it went off <laughs> off road a little bit. Let me give you another example, though. There was Zoom right, reporting last night and the story about this company is slowing growth and can they get better margins and profitability? They mentioned AI four times in their prepared remarks. We had the CFO on CNBC earlier this morning and she said that they're making an acquisition in the AI space. And that's meant to help the stock. And yes, the opportunity is huge. No doubt about that. But where is it? And do you see it immediately? I mean, there's other companies like Palantir who just say AI on their call, but don't tell you how it actually fits into the business model. That's going to be the next step, sorting through the hype. Yeah, no doubt about it. And it's interesting that you bring up a company like Zoom because you talk about declining growth here. I mean, it's a company that's expected to grow earnings and sales mid-single digits, right, for the next couple of years and trading about 19 times this year, a little less than five times sales. But this is a very profitable company with $4.5 billion revenue base. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, like, I'm glad they didn't say AI 20 times. I think four sounds kind of sufficient. Also, when a big part of a story like this is cost-cutting, if they start going heavy into like new initiatives where ultimately they're going to be able to use a lot of the technology from the big platform players if they're going to integrate it into their own product, like that would probably not be a great do for a company like this that is still down, what, 85% or something from its all-time highs just a couple years ago. That's a good point because doing AI deploying these chatbots is expensive. It requires a huge amount of computing power. Dan, I'm going to take issue with you. You called Zoom very profitable. I don't know. Let's call it slightly profitable, especially if you look at it on a gap basis. I was looking earlier this week at, you know, I like to look at the role of stock-based compensation. Strip that out, does a number to the gap profitability. You know what? I, I appreciate you pushing back on that because I like to do that too. And, you know, here's a 78% gross margin company. And to your point, net income adjusted on that $4.5 billion expected revenue this current year is about $1.2 billion on a gap basis. And my friend at Wall Street Cynic, you know him, Jim Chanos, he loves to look at the gap. I mean, on the net income on a gap basis, they're expected to lose maybe like $75 million. Okay. So it makes it, it swings the company into gap on profitability. And I think that's a really great point. But relative to many other kind of SaaS sort of names, I mean, this valuation on an earnings basis, even if it's adjusted, seems pretty reasonable. But again, you know, until this company accelerates growth and is able to do something kind of organically on the product front, it is not going to be on anyone's radar for M&A. I can't imagine anytime soon. Touche. I will say you're absolutely correct in that. And that in this field of the IPOs that went public over the last few years, it is more profitable than both. So on that spectrum, absolutely. And you know, I like Eric Yuan. He's a good CEO. And if anyone is going to be able to innovate out of the position that they are in, he's as good a candidate as any. Well, think about this. I mean, just like this company, okay, has a $17 billion enterprise value. It has a $22 billion market cap. They have $5.4 billion in cash. Okay. So when you think about that, and then you think about what Salesforce paid for Slack, which has a lot of similar functionality. If you think about it for Zoom, I think they paid, I think it was largely in stock, but like $26, $27 billion for a company that had far fewer revenues. So on a multiple of sales, I think they paid like 25 times or something like that. And that just shows you just in a couple of years how things have kind of reacclimated a little bit because, again, we're not going to see those sorts of multiples paid for companies like this that are kind of one-trick ponies anytime soon. Do we think that Benioff is going to be talking about AI? Do we have an over-under how many times he mentions it to distract oh, a- from that 20? 20- 
$6.7 billion Slack acquisition that investors, by the way, are increasingly saying should be spun off. Well, I mean, that one um, will come out at a much lower uh, valuation, I have to assume, than $26 billion. But it's interesting, while you were gone, NVIDIA reported last week, and I know that's a company that you track very closely. Jensen Wang is, is on Tech Check. I, it seems like all the time, or at least every time that they're reporting earnings. And, you know, they had a lot of interesting commentary because, again, we're seeing some deceleration in gaming. We're seeing it. Obviously, the crypto mining stuff has gone away. Dana Center has slowed down a little bit. But they, they said they're open for business and AI. And they, they, they kind of had a couple good zingers there. And that was one where that was a huge gap in that stock after it's already had a huge run. It doubled off the lows. What was your takeaway on that? Because, again, thinking about the picks and shovels as it relates to the AI wars that are going on in the big platforms, that's probably a great way to play it. So if you have an AI hype spectrum, right, and on the far left, you have fake hypey stuff. And on the far right, you have real applications and power or influence in the space. I think almost everyone would agree that NVIDIA is on the far right. I mean, there was this bottoms up analysis this week that someone on Wall Street did that I thought was really good. It talks about all the computing power that is needed to run these chat GPT queries. You're going to need NVIDIA GPUs to do that. So they remain well positioned and the market has certainly taken note of that. What are, What is it up 60% year to date? What was interesting though, Dan, I know you'll appreciate this. Kathy Wood was on our air yesterday. Can you believe she said a stock was overvalued and that stock is NVIDIA coming from her kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, that's the point. I'm so glad that you push back on the gap profitability. So NVIDIA is expected to do over $30 billion in sales this year, growing at 10% plus. And one of the things that's really interesting is that on a gap basis, I mean, this company is going to do maybe $9 billion in net income. And so here's the problem, though. It trades at 53 times earnings and nearly 20 times sales this year. And, and so it's just not like the sort of valuation for a company that has a half a trillion dollar market cap that makes any sense. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of Fast Money viewers, or, or if you listen on the tape or OK Computer, you know that I'm kind of bearish right now because I feel like we haven't had the appropriate like bloodletting that really takes to get all the excesses out. And if you want to tell me, OK, all those work from home and school from home and all those things that saw these massive sort of pull forwards, they're down 70, 80 percent, that's fine. But if you add all those market caps up together, they don't equal Apple's market cap, for instance, right? You know what I mean? So to, to me, that didn't take the excesses out of the period. And I think NVIDIA is kind of the poster child for that. Great company exposed to all of the buzziest stuff. And I know you know that. Um, but again, at 20 times sales for a half a trillion dollar market cap or more, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. I can't argue with that, that the valuation is extremely high. Um, I guess I, I was talking about the report I was reading earlier this week, talking about its opportunity in the massive total addressable market that could come out of this AI boom for NVIDIA. They were talking about, let's say there's a billion chat GPT or generative AI queries a day. That would add 10 to 20 billion to NVIDIA sales. Right now, Google is processing 8.5 billion searches a day. So if they manage to capture even a fraction of that, and if you believe what some very smart people say, that this AI platform shift is going to be bigger than the shift to mobile, I don't know. AI's maybe one that you want to have a bit of money in. We'll continue to kind of find some under the radar sort of stuff. I don't think C3 AI would fit into that category, but I do think it's interesting. And, and I'm just curious. I'm going to ask this kind of rhetorically. This is kind of like, um, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Where's, where's Benedict Evans gone? Remember, he was like this prolific guy at A16Z. He was tweeting. He was writing. He was podcasting. I still get his newsletter and I really like his stuff, but he's no longer with Andreessen. But he basically had a little blurb in his weekly, and I thought it was worth kind of reading. I'd love to get your take on it. Microsoft seems to have speed run the entire AI cycle from winter to boom and back to winter again. In fact, now emerges that it spent years testing Sydney chatbot. It tried to merge with OpenAI's chat GPT last month. Lots more interesting stuff is happening elsewhere, though. GitHub's Copilot is now live, and he remarks that Microsoft owns GitHub. Allen and Over is testing ChatGPT-based legal drafting assistant, and AWS is partnering with Hugging Face. So again, I don't know what any of those things are, um, but I, 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 there's a whole host of things that are going on away from what's going on with just the Google and the Microsoft. I'm just curious how you think about that, because again, these are going to be stories that you're reporting on. You're going to be getting to know the investors and the board members who are kind of pointing you 
towards these new applications and these new companies. Is this the stuff that most interests you from a reporting standpoint? Absolutely. Because before we were talking about Microsoft and ChatGPT, it was open AI. Let's not forget that this is an incumbent. This product didn't actually come from a tech giant. It came from a startup created by some of the most prolific people in technology like Sam Altman and Elon Musk and others. But the fact that it was able to grow organically, not inside Microsoft or not inside Google, it raises the question, how many more are out there? And at a time when it's tough here in the Bay Area for Silicon Valley, all we talk about is layoffs and cost cutting and efficiency. This serves as a real beacon of hope, I think, for the people who love innovation and the innovators that are trying to build something new here. It shows us that it is possible and the landscape is ripe for that. If OpenAI could come and capture the imaginations of millions and millions of people, get their product out many multiples of times faster than a Snap or a TikTok or an Instagram, there's something here. So I think what Benedict Evans is saying is a really good point in that there's more out there and we haven't even started to scratch the surface. Yeah, let's talk about this real quickly because again, there was a really great interview that you did, I think right before you went skiing. It was with Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft. And you were asking him, like, does he fear AI and its capabilities? And again, this was coming right on the heels of Kevin Ruse's little date that he had on Valentine's Day <laughs> with, with Sydney. And, and I thought his comment was, was really kind of funny. He said, between technological innovation and appropriate weighing in from government, I think we we're going to get a very good place. Okay, talk to me about that because, again, I, I mean, like, genius guy, okay, he bought the Clippers for two billion. No, I mean, he's a genius guy. He was a CEO of Microsoft for a very long time. What did you make of that? Because, again, I, I think it's for him to say appropriate weighing in from government. I mean, here's a company that literally missed the internet and mobile and consumer stuff because of government. I mean, a lot of people would say because of the government's case against them in the late 90s, you know, it kind of took their eye off the ball in the 2000s. I'm just curious, what was your take on that when you were talking to him. That's funny. I didn't even think about the irony of the Microsoft and all of that. What I thought of immediately was social media and how <laughs> how good the government was at regulating that um, until, of course, it was too late. So I did think that that was a funny answer, but also extremely hyperbolic, right? If you don't fear AI a little bit, you are just basically putting your head in the sand. <laughs> He's got to say that, and you know, Steve Ballmer talks the way he does, and it's always a great soundbite and a great headline. But to me, it, it, there's so much to worry about here, and we've already seen that. And there's so much that we don't even know what to fear. Um, and, and I don't know, to be clear, I don't know if government should be the one to regulate this. I don't know if the companies themselves are any good at that as shown in the past, but there's something that's that's got to step in. And I, I've had this debate a lot here in the Bay Area at dinners um, with VCs, with, different, with CEOs over how you control this huge shift. You know, Elon Musk, who, who originally was one of the founders, left it. And now I guess there was a headline this morning that they're kind of actively pursuing a team to kind of focus on this at Twitter. But, you know, he was on Twitter over the weekend, I think, talking about like woke AI and all this sort of stuff. And it's just, are we going to do this again? We're going to divide these sorts of issues right down party lines. And it really is right down party lines. And I think you make a great point is like a little government intervention or a little kind of regulatory guideline didn't help social media particularly well. You know what I mean? So there is a certain sense of irony, which brings me to the whole situation with TikTok. So today, again, Tuesday afternoon, the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee plans to take up legislation that would give President Joe Biden the authority to ban TikTok. You and I have talked about this a lot over the last couple of months or so. And again, this seems kind of like low-hanging fruit here, especially when you consider that none of our social media companies have access to Chinese consumers and a whole host of reasons. Uh, censorship, primarily the big one, when you think about ByteDance, who's the owner of TikTok here, they've gone to great lengths to kind of, at least from a window dressing standpoint, make it look like, you know, that the data and everything is not going back to China and being housed there. But talk to me about this because we're seeing Meta rally a little bit today on this. We're seeing Snap rally a little bit on this today. I have to assume that this is coming to a theater near you because the situation in our last pod, you and I talked about this and you covered Asia extensively over the course of your career. Our relations with China are about as bad as they've been in the last 20 years, and they don't feel like they're getting any better anytime soon. 
No, and I like how you said coming to a theater near you because this is a lot of political theater. I can't help but groan a little bit when I see another headline about TikTok being banned. But I do think that today may be a little bit different. It's not a full-scale ban, but what they're talking about is taking away some of the rules that have protected TikTok in the past. They're saying, you know, we could take that away and then you could actually lead to a wider ban. So it wouldn't just be government devices. We know, as you say, that this is as bipartisan as you can get in Washington leads us to question if TikTok is banned, what happens? There's a lot of American money that um, has invested in ByteDance. Would the Chinese government allow the TikTok US version to be spun out or not? You know, we've seen that they've had a hard line with other technologies. So the fate very much up in the air. And I'm coming around to the fact that you could see TikTok banned here. And one of the reasons I've kind of been picking at Snap over the last kind of few months, and Snap's a stock that really, you know, if you look at it going back to the spring when it gapped down to this kind of $10 level, it's probably been on either side of it. And listen, this is a company that's been aggressively cutting costs. What did they cut? Like a 30% of their workforce. This was back in the fall. And again, you know, we're seeing digital ad budgets retrench. The thing about Evan Spiegel is that everybody I know and everybody I know know who's kind of smart about this stuff. They say he's a great product guy. Now, I don't use the product, but my kids certainly do. And I know, you know, like hundreds of millions of other people do. They've been growing much faster. Let's say Twitter on the daily monthly active user base of the revenue base is going to like eclipse um, that of Twitter's here. It just seems like the sort of product that if you throw a little this AI, you throw a little AR and VR, every little buzzword you can get in there. And then TikTok was banned. I I have to assume that you're going to see a lot of ad dollars and maybe a lot of at least attention capital kind of recaptured by Snap. Any thoughts on that? Okay, so my question to you would be, who is in the best position to capitalize on that? I made a joke, it wasn't very funny, on air today though, that the Silicon Valley, what we say here is that Evan Spiegel is Facebook's best product developer. So does he lead the way for Zuckerberg to come in and take advantage? He may be a brilliant product guy, but does he know to know how to monetize it in the same way that Zuckerberg is able to. Um, and, and I guess another question, I mean, as you know, I lived in China for a number of years and I, everyone there uses a VPN. So you, they would use a VPN to get on Google if it was a better product than Baidu. Let's say a better search engine than Baidu. I think that they just went to Baidu because it was more Chinese focused. If TikTok remains a better product than Reels, than whatever Snap is offering, I wouldn't underestimate people's desire to get a VPN and still use it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I guess here in the U.S., we're kind of lazy. And so I've been hearing people bitch and moan about Instagram Reels and that it's just not the same product that it used it's to be. It's the worst. You go, no, you go on there and it's not like the thing where you're seeing like the, the pictures of your friends and the little comments and that sort of thing. And so I kind of feel like that's a great point that you made about, you know, Evan Spiegel being the kind of product development team for Facebook and, and they've just copied everything. I think that they've kind of hit a wall. You know, when you think about a company like Snap as a unique social property with over a half a billion like monthly active users, very few companies have been able to achieve that. And if you think about the fact that they've been cutting the cost the way they have, they still have the founder in control. I think just a few things have to go right for them. One, a big one might be just taking a big competitor out of the U.S. market, and maybe that story starts working again. All right, one last thing. I want to get your take on this because I thought this is kind of interesting. So Twilio, okay, the CEO Jeffrey Lawson bought $10 million worth of stock in the open market. And he it was about 158,000 shares. He owns about 226,000. Now, what's interesting is that the stock's up 37% of the year. It's up 67% from its 52-week and all-time lows, but it's still down 80-plus percent, okay? And then, again, this is a company who's seen massive deceleration in the revenue growth, okay? It's gone from, like, 50%-plus for the last few years to, like, let's say, mid-teens or so. And on a gap earnings basis, though, this is losing money. And again, they're expected to lose more money in 2022 than they lost in 2021. And on a gap basis, they're supposed to still lose like four and a half dollars and four dollars. And like, so I guess my point is, is like on an earnings basis, these valuations make no sense. On a price of sales, it's come down to like a little below three or so. It just shows you how out of whack things were a year or two ago. But I just don't see a lot of money piling into these companies that are expected to just experience decelerating growth and kind of gap earnings losses for the next few years. Yeah. And I think the real question is once you're done with all the cost cutting and the efficiency measures and the layoffs, 
then investors are going to start looking at your top line growth and say, hold on, you cut that also, or you're not in a position to capitalize on that now that the macro has become better. I think Twilio is such an interesting case because it's one of these IPO, the class of the last few years, IPO class of the last few years, it was founder led. You had this dual class share structure. So you had Jeff Lawson saying, you know, I'm just going to focus on this top line growth, growth at any cost. That dual class share structure is sunsetting this year. And he has been on a charm offensive over the last few months. He has been cutting costs, committing to margin expansion. He found a CFO because the street wanted him to do that. We interviewed him a few weeks ago on Tech Check. And I asked him, I said, does that have anything to do with, <laughs> you know, this dual class structure sunsetting? And he was like, well, you know, kind of, yeah, we want to give investors what they want, but then what do you trade off for that, right? You back a company that's led by a founder because they have this grand vision. And one of the best CEOs who I think does this is Tony Hsu. Last time I interviewed him, I asked him, you know, the street wants this. They want real profitability. And he's like, well, you know what? I dedicated a whole page in my earnings to tell them why I'm focused on unit economics instead. So he's been able to keep that message. But it's interesting to see the Twilio CEO give Wall Street more of what they want. I don't know how that works out in the longer term. But as you said, stock's been doing better this year. I love that. Debo, you are the real earnings warrior here because, again, and these are two companies that you report on extensively in Uber, and Dara has done a much better job than the guys at Lyft articulating how they are going to get to real profitability. And the stock is up, you know, 35% of the year versus Lyft that's trading very near its lows down, you know, 8 or 9% on the year. So that's a great one. Listen, Debo, we are so fortunate to have you pop in, talk to us about the stories that you're reporting on, that you're hot on the stuff that you're hearing, pushing back at me, because I can be I can be a little much uh, here and there. Um, so I really appreciate you coming in, and I hope to get you back next week. Always keep me honest, okay, Dan? So I'll push back on whatever I say, too. <laughs> Thanks for dropping in. All right, stick around. When I come back, Rick Heitzman and Matt Turk of First Mark Capital. Welcome back to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here with Rick Heitzman. He is the founder and CEO of Firstmark Capital. Rick, welcome back. How are you, Dan? Good to be back. We're going heavy Firstmark here because we have Matt Turk. Matt is a partner with you over at Firstmark here, and he just released his mutually assured destruction. No, 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 no. <laughs> Matt, Matt, welcome to OK Computer. This is your inaugural podcast here, and hopefully we're going to make it more active. Talk to us a little bit. We're going to get to it. I want to get to your background and how you got to First Mark and what your background is, an operator, an investor, and, and all that. But really quickly, because we're going to go deep after that into this report that you just released. This is the 10th year in a row that you've done this. So talk to us what it's called, where people can find it, and really what the mission is here, because this is really very much tied to, to the way I think about some processes at First Mark here, and you go deep on this thing every year. Yeah. Yeah, so the report is called the MAD. Uh, that the stands MAD. for machine learning, artificial intelligence, and data. You can find it on my blog at mattturk.com slash mad2023. And this year, for the first time, we have an interactive version of it. Uh, you know, we decided to go all in on this thing that they call the World Wide Web and have <laughs> something that uh, people can actually play with. And that is at mad, M-A-D dot firstmarkcap.com. Yeah, well, this is funny. Before I ever met you, I had known Rick, and you know this this thing gets really heavily trafficked in VC circles. And I used to see it move all over the web. It was often quoted uh, in people's blogs and tweeted about and LinkedIn posts. It's really um, a great report. So before we really dig into that, let's talk about how. First of all, why are you not at Matt on Twitter? Because your friend over here, you know, yeah. we got Rick, Rick, Rick's at Rick, and and you've been on Twitter probably like since day one, since they turned the lights on. Yeah, I need uh, I need uh, better friends like our friends <laughs> at Row who uh, somehow managed to find that handle for Rick. It's pretty cool, well, right? One day, maybe it's it's amazing. Well, it's, it's funny. Amazing. I will say this. So again, before I ever met you, you know, there's a lot of garbage on Twitter, and it's gotten a bit heavier. It feels like a cesspool right now. But you know, it's funny. And, and VC Twitter is, is a unique thing. Um, and you keep a low profile, Rick. But you are not only very substance based, but you're also witty and you're you're funny. And I think people who are able to thread that needle on the web, especially 
obviously from the VC community, it's few and far between. Talk to us a little bit about your relationship with that because you seem very open about your content and you're an active sort of tweeter. And give us a little little background on that. Yeah, I think Twitter is an amazing community and tool if you use it the right way. I think it takes a fair amount of effort to get there. Uh, but if you use it, it's just this incredible networking and information gathering tool at, at scale, which I find amazing. Now, yes, it's not for everyone. If you look at the evolution of how I tweeted, I used to tweet like really serious stuff about, uh, you know, the topics I love, machine learning, AI, and data. And then, you know, nobody really cared. Over the last couple of years, I started realizing that actually you can joke around on Twitter and uh, it's actually okay. I think the zeitgeist of Twitter has, has, has evolved in a way that enables you to just be a lot more carefree. And I think it's been a lot of fun. So and, ha- been- and how do you think about that? As you think about, you know, am, am I building a community? Am I having fun? Am I doing a little bit of both? Look, ultimately, for, for me, it's more of a, almost a creative outlet, the way I think about it. Uh, so the way I do it is I force myself to not think about it, and then I allow myself to just delete my tweets within a few minutes or an hour if I decide I don't like it anymore. And that, for me, that has like unleashed my sort of happiness on, on Twitter, if you want. You know what released uh, Rick's happiness on Twitter is just this creation of this community of the process trusters, which I've got to I mean, how could you put this group say, together? Say the a, name, right? So Ricky Sanchez podcast fans. I, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. I think what was it like fifteen of you? And yes. you guys all met basically on Philadelphia 76ers Twitter. There's a thing of that. You know, I was on that trip with you. I don't even know why I get the invite. Maybe just because I'm just fun to go to a, a basketball game with. But that whole crew literally was put together through a community that was built on just you guys. I think starting bitching and moaning about the Sixers, and now you guys. Feel well, a the bit Sixers better. have gone through the whole revolution of trusting the process. As Sam Hinkie famously said, having the longest view in the room and then getting behind the team that's going to win the championship this year. So we all met each other on Twitter. We all get together. And that's become both an online and in real life community, you know, very similar to what we've seen across the web. So Matt, you're a part of a handful of communities. Obviously, the First Mark community, you do a lot of your own content too. This data-driven NYC um, is, is something that's been a passion project of yours. Talk to us a little bit about how you got to First Mark. You were an entrepreneur before you were a VC. And um, how did you find our friend at Rick? Yeah, I've been uh, you know, in and out of the the tech world in general and the data and AI sort of world specifically for quite a while now. I started my te- my career in technology as a founder. I co-founded uh, what would be known uh, today as a hot AI company, but at the time it was a little more, it took a little more convincing of our VC friends that like AI was hot at the time. But I was a co-founder of a tech company. I did that for a few years. The company was VC-backed. We eventually were acquired by Oracle. I joined Oracle as part of the acquisition. So I went from the very small company to the very large company. And then I left to help start Bloomberg Venture. Uh, which was the first sort of incubation and uh, investment effort of uh, Bloomberg LP. Then I had a series of wonderful conversations with our friend at Rick uh, yeah. and his partner, Amish. Look, the, the vision of First Mark, what it was then and what it still very much is today, very much resonated with me. I'm an immigrant, but like immigrant, I have a love for the place where I landed, which is New York City, is very strong. And I've believed in your tech community as an epicenter for a long time. And then those guys were building a native New York early stage VC firm, which was very unique. And uh, frankly, I got lucky and I got the job. And uh, it's been a wonderful 10 years. And we've gotten, we got incredibly lucky that you shared our beliefs in New York being a center, having a community driven approach and having an empathetic VC ear that we're very close to the industries we invest in. And we like to build communities around it. And we think those overlapping communities are where the magic happens. And, you know, Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about data-driven, which is, you know, one of the first communities we built? Data-driven NYC is a labor of love. It's an approach to being a venture capitalist that really revolves around creating a conversation, getting people together and learning together. Uh, Its ethos is to be open to everyone, to be free. We don't have any kind of specific agenda or goal other than getting a bunch of people to geek out together on topics we're passionate about. And as tends to be the case with those label of love kind of uh, endeavors, when they hit, which has been the case for Data Driven NYC, what you get in return is just incredible. So we are now at our 110th event. Uh, We've uh, hosted 400 plus speakers. And most importantly, we have a community of about 20,000 people in New York. And it's been intensely rewarding. 
That's great. Uh, you know, it's interesting. So we're going to spend some time talking about AI, machine learning, all these other acronyms. Rick, I mean, listen, a lot of our listeners have gotten to know some of First Mark's biggest hits. And we've talked about you know, a lot of consumer-facing marketplaces and, and, and the like here. When you look at a guy like Matt, and you have this tweet, I love this. This was from January 4th. It's a, easy to succeed in data AI. All you need to do is put data into a DWH for an OL app using ETL or ELT. I mean, I could go on. There's a lot of acronyms there. Was this a, um, a fun metal shift. At some point, did you and Amish just say, you know, we got this consumer app thing down, the digitization of, of a lot of these other industries as it relates from B2C. Wait, did you guys have a concerted effort? Um, because again, you guys are not Johnny completely in this. You, you've done 10 of these mad reports while you've been at First Mark here, data-driven, a lot of what you guys focus on, a lot of the, the stuff that you've been investing in around those themes are, are very much related to the stuff that seems really popular right now, but th- this is not something that you guys have just happened onto. Yeah, I mean, we, we believe in kind of eating our own dog food. Even as we've talked about companies, over the, especially over the last year or so, focus and prioritization is key. So as we thought about creating Firstmark, it's not only the focus of having a geographic bias to New York. It's not only the focus of being the first institutional investor and being the trusted early stage partner, but it's also being one of the world's leading experts in our areas. So whether it's myself in kind of consumer technology, marketplaces, video games, Amish who did Shopify and Pendo and a lot of the great SaaS companies and what he's done in that world. And then, you know, Matt being able to think about infrastructure, data, AI, machine learning, and how all those things interact was really part of the magic, how it happened, that we have our own swim lanes, but, you know, we're a tight enough partnership, we're a small enough group that we're all helping each other out all the time. So talk to us, Matt, about this report. So it just dropped. It's already getting a lot of traction, I see, at least on Twitter here. What was the initial impetus for this? Okay, you said this is the first version that's interactive. And it's interesting that you mentioned that your company that you founded got acquired by Oracle. And as somebody who obviously looks at a lot of this through the public market lens, I saw Oracle popping up on your graphic a lot. And I also say, I'm looking at my FactSet machine right now. You know, Oracle has gone from, okay, and we're not, this is not the stock market show. We're not doing fast money right here, but gone from, $62, okay, at a 52-week low in early October, right before the NASDAQ really bottomed, to $90. And and so then all of a sudden, this is just my little normie brain working here a little bit. And then I'm looking at your report, and I'm seeing not just an infrastructure, but a lot of other categories. So this is a great visual tool, not just for VCs out there, just to think about some of these names that you might have thought were pretty staid, right? You know what I mean? But they are actually have a pretty decent foothold in some of these emerging techs and how they're going to be applied to other industries. So talk to us a little bit about how you came about this project in general, how it has evolved, and and how you use it in your own process as you're kind of evaluating companies. So look, I think that the era of the generalist VC has long passed. I think to be a great investor and a great partner to entrepreneurs on boards, uh, you need to do the work. This is a part of the work I do. There are two approaches. I could just like keep it this keep this to myself and my insights and my thoughts, or I could decide to open source it. And very much in the same lines uh, as Data Driven, I decided to open source it and use that annual effort as a way to have an ongoing conversation with the community. And I just learn a tremendous amount from just the reaction. Like I throw the thing out in the world and then... <laughs> As you can imagine, I get countless emails of people saying, well, you know, you forgot my company or uh, I'm not in the right category or I do more than the one thing that you put me in the category for. Uh, and then I get a bunch of like, you know, feedback from very smart people, including people in different countries and people that I would otherwise not have a conversation with. So so it's really that is doing the work and then open sourcing it. You guys are a native NYC VC yeah. firm. This is something that you and I have talked a lot about, and especially with some of our guests. And we talk about how, you know, VC was really thought to be this kind of Silicon Valley thing. You and Amish, 20 years ago, you laid down your roots here. You said, we're going to do it here. And it's funny, in the report, Matt, you mentioned that you kind of Sometimes you'll over-index to New York or you're over-index to certain things that are kind of in your purview. Talk to me, you know, a little bit about what you're seeing, Rick, right now in this space. I mean, we had this great conversation with Josh Wolf from Lux over the summer. They are focused on a lot of the same themes, but they're very focused on our particular vertical here. How, how are you thinking about, like, so, so verticals, geographies and stuff well, like that? You think about the evolution of New York, right? And if you, you know, 20 years ago... 
you would have, you know, people said, hey, New York's great, but for ad tech and not really hard tech. Yeah. And there's not really big ad te- uh, hard tech companies here. And I think three things happened, which fundamentally changed that. First of all, you had a lot of success in companies that were largely engineering driven, the double clicks of the world 15, 20 years ago. Second was you were able to have large companies build engineering hubs here. So Google has the second most of their engineers in New York City. Facebook Meta built a huge engineering hub here that not only did the superficial UX stuff, but also did the data infrastructure machine learning piece of it. And the third thing is you build a community. And, you know, largely due to Matt's work and effort, there became a community among those folks and really uh, brought about a lot of change in the infrastructure software space. And what people wouldn't imagine 20 years ago that there's companies like Datadog and MongoDB, which are $20 billion public companies that have their engineering doing some of the hardest engineering in the world right here in New York City. And even more people are coming from Facebook. More people are coming from Meta. More people are coming from Amazon here. And all of a sudden, the flywheel keeps turning. And you're getting the network effect, which is occurring here in New York. And then as those companies grow, and whether that's an engineer who moved from the Bay Area to New York with Google, who then has a great idea, or someone spinning out of a Datadog or a Mongo, there's a whole community here to support them and hopefully a great group of venture capitalists here to catch them. Yeah. So Matt, are you seeing, you know, the geographic point is, is a great one. We're just, you know, seeing a lot of great founders, a lot of earlier stage companies not in, in the Valley anymore. And, and, you know, it's funny that Austin thing almost felt like a kind of little dalliance or so with the Miami thing as it relates to crypto and web thing. I, it really feels like New York City is like the beneficiary of the diaspora of, you know, the pandemic that caused that. I think in some of those areas like Silicon Valley, as you think about New York City, you think about your focus in this mad report, is there a stage of company that you're seeing more pop up into this report year over year um, You know, um, versus, let's say, 2019 or 220, um, right, right before the pandemic here? Are there more early stage companies being founded in New York in this area? The level of energy in the New York tech ecosystem over the last six to nine months in particular, like nothing I've seen before. It's an overnight success. Uh, 10 or 15 years in the making, but it really feels like the last few months were truly the arrival of New York as uh, an absolutely major tech ecosystem. And there's different parts to this. One part that's uh, pretty close to my heart is also the big influx of European companies that decide to come to the U.S. As recently as four or five years ago, I would have to have conversations with entrepreneurs, whether you know, French or German or British or Scandinavian, about how New York really was a, was a good place to come. But people would say, well, you know, if I'm going to pick up my bags and move across the Atlantic, I'm going to go to the center of the world, which uh, is San Francisco. I think that conversation has completely changed. And now people by default come to New York, which has created this massive influx of opportunities to invest in, and partner with all sorts of companies. So when you've written this report in the past, you know, obviously your head's down for a while. You're doing a lot of research. You're kind of categorizing a lot of these companies. How do you feel about the state of these private companies? And and then we can talk about the public markets a little bit. So when you're like putting them all in these buckets, I know you've recategorized some stuff as it's a fast moving sort of space right now. Does it feel pretty good from an investment standpoint? Are the valuations really depressed? Is it becoming really crowded? And therefore there's going to take a a little bit more of a culling, you know, and, and we can kind of think about that across lots of other areas of private tech. I'm just curious, like, what was your feel when you got done with this? I mean, if there's one thing that the report evidences year after year is that uh, this is an incredibly crowded space. We started this 10 years ago. We fit in about 140 companies. And at the time, it felt like there was a lot of companies to put on just one slide. In this version of the report, we are at 1,400 companies. And frankly, we could have put another 1,400 on it if we had the real estate to do so. So certainly, it's very crowded. At the same time, directionally, it's the mega trend of the last few years and the coming years, the rise of what used to be called big data, which is as now morphed into data infrastructure, which feeds machine learning and AI, which, you know, I think is about to change everything. So there is going to be room for lots of great companies to be built. At the same time, in Parts of the landscape, it feels like there is a moment of reckoning that is about to happen. In the wake of the Snowflake IPO, over the last two to three years, there was a massive influx of capital that got deployed in lots of different companies. A lot of them had great founders, 
have built an interesting product, uh, but ultimately the very early stage company and the market has effectively shut down the door behind them. And now they're going to have to just grow into the valuations, prove themselves in a context where demand for their products is starting to go down because everything is decelerating. Does the world need uh, 20 data observability or data quality companies? Probably not. How that's going to play out? I think we are at the beginning of a Darwinian phase where some companies are going to emerge and most other companies are just not going to make it. Well, it's funny. You bring up Snowflake, and, and this was certainly it was a monster IPO, right? And it was late 2020, and it was really the poster child for obscene valuations. I think it was trading like 40 times sales with a market cap like close to $100 billion or something like that, right? And this is, again, this is a company that's expected to do $2 billion in sales trailing. It still trades at a really fat multiple. And so everything that you just said about the trends and people seeing the opportunities in the private markets... It still exists, even though the stock's down 65% from those all-time highs. Crick, I'm just curious because, you know, you come on Fast Money a lot and, and you're coming on and you're talking about some of the things that you're investing in, some of the trends that you're seeing early stage in the private markets. And we're trying to kind of extrapolate that a little bit into the public markets. In late 2020 or early 21, we were probably mentioning that stock every day, you know, on our show. We're not talking about it anymore because I think it still feels like, to your point, there's still a reckoning that seems like even though the, the stock market feels a little better in 2023, it seems like some of these things seem like fat pitches in a way that they're not done correcting. Yeah, I, I think Snowflake was the highest price to sales multiple SaaS company for years. And now it's, what does that really mean? I think like a lot of the rest of the market, I think Snowflake is still growing incredibly fast, probably growing over 40% year over year. Matt might know better. But, you know, so it's growing quickly. It has an excellent management team, and Slootman's probably as good of a technology executive as anyone. But what does that mean, and what does that look like on a normalized basis when you're still years away from real earnings? So how do you think about that and valuation, you know, is the question up in the air like every other technology company. And the bigger the market cap, the more pressure you should feel on that. And I think, you know, a lot of folks are waiting for, as Matt said, the reckoning. What does that mean for consolidation? You know, is Snowflake a platform which will which will add on partners will use its currency to be able to take advantage of maybe a valuation swoon in the private markets to be a consolidator and build, you know, this giant in AI, ML and data. And, you know, is that going to, are you going to see the the blob of snowflake slowly overtaking Matt's landscape over the next year? Well, so Matt, do you see that? Like, so to Rick's point, they are expected to grow sales 40% for the next few years, but on a gap basis, you know, they still are losing, I don't know, expected to lose like 800, 900 million in net income on a $2 billion revenue base. Again, growing 40%, 71, 72% gross margins is probably hard to do any meaningful M&A for a company like that until they really have a, a clear path to gap profitability. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think that in the world of data infrastructure, we're going to see very splashy, multi-billion kind of deals uh, for a while. I think consolidation is going to take the form of a lot of talking acquisitions. And if you look at Snowflake, they've actually done eight, I believe, including three just in the first few months of 2023. Snowflake is focused on being the leading platform for data and AI and in a death match with Databricks. I think their focus is going to continue being that that core platform. Yeah, it's worth noting, though, you know, the Nasdaq was up 16, 17% on the year. Okay. That was after being down 30% last year. Now it's only up 9%. We're recording this on, on the 23rd. NASDAQ is now up you know, 9.5% or so. And a, a stock like Snowflake is only up 3%. So the underperformance is really interesting. And I think it speaks to what we're talking about here is like we're kind of not out of the woods yet for companies that are not profitable on a gap basis that still trade at a fat valuation. There's still a lot of overhang. Here's the other thing about these IPOs, 2021, there were none in 2022, but there's there's, there's a lot of stock that's been locked up that could be sold. And even with this thing at a $47 billion market cap, if you were early in this name, you still have massive gains, right? So like to you, it depends like your point about decelerating trends. If that were to accelerate in a recession, we're already seeing some enterprise demand waning here and we're seeing job cuts from some of the big platforms. 
platform companies and cloud companies. So, I mean, if that were to accelerate, you could see an acceleration of insider selling in names like this who've been locked up. I'd be less concerned with Snowflake. It's been public for long enough. I think people had the opportunity to get out. I haven't looked at the numbers, but most people have gotten out. What you're seeing is, you know, Snowflake talking about darkening clouds as part of their earnings report and saying that, you know, that enterprise demand, which was so strong and they did 57% annual growth last year, that's all great. But what does that mean? And what does their long-term business model look like? And I think you hit on the right valuation question of in a company that's losing money and has decelerating growth, what's the multiple are you going to put on it? And although it might be a premium multiple because it's in a very interesting, very important sector, how premium is that? And how do you adjust for that? And I think that's the exercise, even at this part of the cycle, when you've seen a little bounce off the bottom, how much ahead of that curve are, are folks going to pay for, as opposed to paying a normalized multiple for a company which has taken its lumps, done its layoffs, and gotten to a profitable position. One thing I find particularly interesting is that for the last 10 years, everybody's been talking about big data. And the fundamental idea of big data is collect all the data you have and just like dump it somewhere and almost forget about it. You'll figure out what to do with it later. And that gave rise to Hadoop. And that certainly gave rise to Snowflake, those super elastic you know, repositories where you can put and process data at massive scale. And now for the first time, I'm starting to hear people saying, well, do we actually really need big data? That's expensive. That's cumbersome. We actually don't always do that much with it. That's, again, a big shift in mentality that uh, I hadn't heard uh, in, in years. So, so Bitcoin doesn't fix it? Uh, not yet. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> so, Matt, question, because Rick and I have been talking about this a bit on the pod over the last few weeks, and it seems like it's the only thing that anybody isn't talking about right now. So is it sort of validating for you, who's been in the trenches here on a lot of these themes, again, for 10 years, to see the excitement, the hype, whatever you want to call it, about these these large language models, generative AI. I know it started last year with the Dolly, and, and there was a, a couple other things started bubbling up. But then I think just to kind of open AI and chat GPT-3, it really got people excited. Microsoft just decided, I think Satya said, this year is going to be the year I changed the narrative, at least on stodgy old tech. And so the integration of that and the investment in open AI and just the refocus on Bing and search, I'm just curious, is it validating or does it feel like a tremendous hype cycle where the people like you who've been focused on these technologies and the people who are making a difference, and I'm sure you've taken a very close look at everything that open AI is doing, but also what Microsoft, what Apple, what Amazon, what all the large platform companies have been doing internally, or is it just kind of a story? that the financial media or the big tech media has just kind of latched onto because it's good for clicks. Who knew that in 2023 we would all be talking about Bing? Yeah, uh, I didn't. It, Not on my bingo card. Yes, yes. You were uh, on Bing, though. You did, I saw you I did, did a Bing did, search did, the other day. I did do a Bing search because, I, I, first of all, I, I hadn't... I'd never gone to it. I, I just was curious to see what was going on there. I signed up on the wait list. I guess what really caught my attention, I have been following this story closely because, again, as someone who's followed big tech for a while, it's like every once in a while, some of these hype cycles do actually turn into something. And I used the example on Fast Money the other night. You know, in 2000, Yahoo was the dominant search player, okay? They had a nearly $400 billion market cap. It was one of the largest market cap companies on the planet, okay? Last year, Yahoo got sold to Apollo for like $4 billion. Their search share is 2.5%, okay? So now we have Google that's about 84%. Bing is less than 10%, which shocked me to hear that number, actually, to be very honest with you. And when you think about what Satya is saying here is that they have a fast-growing advertising business across lots of different platforms. They won the deal for Netflix, okay, for ad-supported model. So they had about 18 billion trailing 12 months in ad revenue. That was 10 billion, let's call it 20 months ago or something like that. And Satya said for every 1% market share that they take, that's $2 billion in ad revenue. That on a $200 billion revenue base. That could be really significant, but more importantly, it could be a disaster for Alphabet, for Google. Like that's the way I try to think of these things. I have no idea whether ChatGPT is, you know, maybe it's as maybe it's not better than Bard. You know what I mean? Maybe Google has had been heads down and they've been focused on the right things and how they're going to actually defend their moat with their technology. I'm just curious how you're thinking about it because it certainly caught a lot of headlines over the last few weeks. What's what's been fascinating? Like first of all, uh ChatGPT came out less than three months ago. It sort of feels like it's been years because we've been talking about it so much. 
but it's, it's, it's all very recent. Look, you were asking a question like for, for people like me who have been focused on this space for a long time. This is, you know, many years in the making. But what's happened in the last few weeks is really AI becoming mainstream. The, the reality is that anybody in tech has been super excited. Anybody who's focused on AI in tech has been very excited about uh, AI for at least the last 10 years. 2012 was when those algorithms known as deep learning really became a thing. And then in 2015, Google actually released Transformers, which was this architecture that now has led to GPT. The T in GPT stands for Transformer. And everybody... Just for the folks at home, Matt, what does GPT stand for? GPT stands for a Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And for the last at least two years, the AI community has been raving about GPT-3, but GPT-3 was this developer tool that nobody had access to except people in, in the field. So what's really happened in the last three months is that suddenly the public has become aware of the power of the things which have been around for a little while, certainly are accelerating in a very exciting manner, but has been around for a while. You know, I think people don't realize how much they already use AI. We use AI to unlock our phones. We use AI to find our way. We use AI to sort of organize our pictures. But all of those things are sort of single-trick ponies. And the magic of ChatGPT and the reason why it's caught so much imagination and so much interest is that for the first time, you have this general purpose tool in front of you that feels like it knows everything. And I, I think that's what's created this massive web of excitement. It's funny. And, you know, my, my take, again, as a normie, um, is that, like, search might be the most uninteresting application of this technology if you think across these big platform companies, if you think about how Amazon uses it for recommendations, how Apple might use it across their 2 billion installed iOS base, how Microsoft and both Google or Alphabet will use it across their productivity tools. I mean, to me, I have no interest in having a conversation with my search engine. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not looking for- You talk for, to Alexa, yeah, no, you talk to Siri. No, but, but you know what's funny? Nobody really does anymore. And, and and again, and that goes back to these sort of hype cycles in the way that, you know, that was going to be the next thing. Well, it really wasn't. I guess I, I look at it again through the lens of, you know, public markets. And this was the other night, NVIDIA reported their results. This is a half a trillion dollar market cap company that trades at 19 times sales, okay? And it's really interesting because there have been massive peaks and valleys with this company. They seem to be, whether it was gaming, whether it was Bitcoin mining, whether it was data center, every hype cycle over the last few years, they've been there, okay? They benefited to the upside and then they got punished on the downside. And this is really interesting. This is in their report last night. And just so you know, the stock is up like 15% today, okay, after those results here. This is Jensen Wang, the CEO of the company. AI is an inflection point setting up for broad based adoption reaching into every industry. He goes on to say, our new AI supercomputer with H100 and its transformer engine and quantum two networking fabric is in full production. I mean, so think about this. Like this guy is the that, master that, at, at like locking buzzword into- Buzzword bingo. Yes, buzzword bingo. Whatever AI trend is going on gaming, here. Big, yeah, you're right. And so it's just kind of interesting. So that's how I think of a lot of this stuff. And I'm just curious, like how are you guys in the private markets thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, all of this may sound like bingo buzzword, all the things, but it's very real and it's been happening for- a while now. So generative AI is the latest hype cycle as part of the series of hype cycles around AI, but the fundamental trend is extraordinarily important. And AI is going to be everywhere. So now, you know, as a CEO of a public company, you, of course, you're going to be playing your book and, you know, playing the game. But this is a fundamental trend that absolutely is happening regardless of the hype. By the way, the, the hype right now for ChatGPT is obviously insane. It will inevitably go down, give it a few more weeks. You know, everybody in generative AI seems to be getting sued. There's plenty of issues around plagiarism, ChatGPT being banned in schools, from websites. All, all of this is happening. AI is a, very much a 90%, 10%. 90%, you see a, an incredible power of AI where AI gets from zero to providing almost magical and very quickly, but then you start hitting the 10% where suddenly you realize that AI just cannot do all the things you need it to be. I think we've been very focused on the 90% of ChatGPT and the amazing power of it. I think we're starting to now realize that the 10% that's missing is extremely painful, and that's the, in particular the hallucination problem, which is basically what separates it from 
something that's uh, super impressive and, and interesting to something that you can actually use in the real world on a daily basis. Well, that, you know, Rick, I was going to say this is like, you know, I think strategically we might look back and say Satya really flubbed this. And, and ironically, the way a lot of people thought Sundar and Alphabet flubbed their BARD release because, you know, you just mentioned, Matt, you know, all these safety issues, the data and, and plagiarism and, uh, you know, it, like if they had just kind of kept heads down and then did some big demo across their productivity tools, which is their bread and butter, you know what I mean? Or their cloud service and stuff like that. It just seems like they went for the low-hanging fruit, the thing that they knew that at least investors might get excited about. And you think of those market but Microsoft's always dying to get in the narrative, right? They want they wanted to change the narrative. Uh, you know, they, they've been, to their benefit, ke keeping their head down. They've kind of navigated the FTC and a lot of their acquisitions much more deftly than the consumer-facing companies like Alphabet and, and Meta were able to do. And maybe this was their time to say, hey, we're not keeping our head down. We're going to plant a stake in the ground and say, we're the AI company. We're doing this thing. It's going to be big. It's going to be open AI. It's going to be consumer facing. It's going to go after search, one of the biggest and best business models in the world. And we're tired of keeping our head down. We'll see in the medium term if that winds up being the right decision. But it was clearly a time for Satya to take his shirt off and beat his chest a little bit. That was a, a really big uh, gamble. F for me, the genius of Microsoft was uh, that relationship with OpenAI, where by partnering with a startup, they could basically have that startup take risks that you couldn't take as a large company. But somehow they just couldn't resist the temptation or the market pressure was too high to turn this into a Microsoft product. And I think they are now in much more complicated wars. So let's talk about it from just an investment in the private market standpoint. OpenAI was set up as a nonprofit. Microsoft, a few years ago, invested $1 billion. And really, that was like this, you know, it was a kind of fast track to access to the tech when it was ready. And there was also like a lot of rebates for Azure. And, and it seemed like, yeah. in hindsight, kind of genius. But then they just kind of invested $10 billion, And you do the math, this is what, 30 or $40 billion startup now, okay? And just when I think about some of these things that are just minted, these whatever you want to call them, we don't even use the term unicorn anymore. You know, look at Stripe right now. Literally, that was a $95 billion company, you know, in the private markets a couple years ago. And now they're selling some stock, you know, in half. Okay. So when you think about the private landscape from an investment standpoint, our valuation is just going to get blown out where like it's going to be impossible to make money unless you just have the next thing that's Google or something like that. I'm just curious how you're thinking about it because Alphabet's already thrown $250 million pre-revenue around like an eight no thing. Well, I think you know, the most important thing we hit about in the top of the show of having a long-term view. So, you know, we didn't all just pivot from doing something else to AI experts at First Mark last week. You know, Matt's been doing his landscape. He's been focused on this market for over a decade. We've been focused on this market for years. So, you know, the fast money, no pun intended, will come and go. And we'll be continue to be the slow money, which are building real businesses as things get hot or not. And I think that this is going to be a real megatrend. You're going to see AI as a horizontal powering applications. And whether that's the information worker or whether that's helping your Uber get to you faster, that's going to be real. And we're going to see it across the, across the gamut from consumer and enterprise apps that this is going to be a very, very important trend. It's a tricky market to invest in a lot more than you would think. So look, as VCs, uh, all of our peers and us are in the business of seeing inflection points. There's certainly an inflection point and something that feels like the beginning of an exponential trend. At the same time, it's a, it's a tricky market from a private company perspective. One, because you are effectively competing against the biggest incumbents in the market. And those are companies that are tech first very large, and I'm talking obviously about Microsoft and Google and Amazon and Meta, and those companies are very large. They have access to all the AI talent in the world, they have all the data in the world, and now they've decided that AI is like the big battleground. So that makes things complicated. Another way it's complicated, possibly, is that a lot of this GPT kind of technology is starting to be available now and using it rolled out across a bunch of different applications. So Canva as an AI product, Notion as an AI product. You've seen Quora release its own uh, chatbot. So this is spreading very quickly. 
And there's certainly a part of the story here, which is that AI is going to be a feature and is going to be built into every single product out there. So just the way, you know, back in the mobile revolution, overnight companies became mobile enabled. And just the fact that you were mobile enabled was more table stakes rather than something that differentiated you against competitors. The same trend is going to apply in AI. Having said that, you know, it doesn't mean that the way you had companies that were built to leverage very specific unique capabilities of mobile like Uber, that's likely to happen in AI as well. So what I'm saying here is that it's truly an inflection point. It's truly an exponential opportunity. At the same time, you need to be extremely discerning in understanding where there is an opportunity. What we do a lot of here is is kind of what's next. And yeah, you know, we have a lot of visibility into the public markets, even companies that are preparing to go public. One of the best parts about our seats is we're able to see what's next and look a little bit into the future. What are a couple companies, as you look at your landscape and you've done a lot of deep research on this space, do you think folks will hear a lot more about in 2023? Probably a little biased here as an investor, but I think there is one part of the AI market that is truly coming of age and reaching scale, which is the enterprise AI market. And there is a company I've been on the board of for a while called Data Aiku, which uh, is now well over 200 million in AR and serving a whole range of of global 2000 type of customers. That's very real, that's very non-experimental, that's delivering tremendous ROI, and that's used every day. In fact, the company's motto is everyday AI. I think that space is absolutely happening right now. And then I think, you know, generative AI is fascinating. I'm a big fan, again, to pick a company that we work with that I'm, because I'm deeply familiar with it, Synthesia. Synthesia.io is a generative AI company that enable companies to create video, in particular, create avatars. And the company has been doing incredibly well. The way that things are going to go for the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of exciting generative AI companies pop up. Of course, there's going to be a hype cycle. Some of them are going to make it. Others are not going to make it. But I think it's a very fertile area, and I'm excited for it. This was a great conversation. I'm really glad you finally made it here with Atric and myself. The report is the 2023 MAD report. That's Machine Learning, Artificial Intelligence, and Data Landscape. You are Matt Turk. You can find it at MattTurk.com. That's three T's right next to each other, which, which is a lot of T's. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, and he's also at Matt Turk with three T's also on the Twitter. And I, I encourage people to go to Twitter, go to his Twitter and look at all the comments and uh, stuff in and around the report. It's really interesting. I think that's a really fun part of it. There's a lot of comments in the actual report or at least on the digital version. So check that out. I hope you'll come back. Let's update the thesis as it moves. I, I know there's going to be a lot to talk about as it relates to generative AI, but some of the deeper themes that you've talked about, maybe we'll drill down on more of those great. as we go on. So Matt, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Very fun. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.